0: Hi, I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
0: This is Seasons, Connecticut Public Radio's new food show, where you'll hear about seasonal food, local farms, chefs, under the radar restaurants.
1: And by seasonal, we don't just mean fresh fruits and veggies. We mean whatever you might be cooking and eating in any given month or season. So sometimes that's going to mean lobster rolls or chocolate or turkey or. Uh, it's a weird mix. I know.
0: <laughs> you had me at chocolate, it's
1: fine. We'll share cookbook recipes with you too. And bring drink experts, one of my favorites, for advice on making cocktails and finding affordable great wines.
0: You are singing my song, Chef. Let's just introduce ourselves, shall we?
1: My name is Chef Plum. I'm a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America with 25 years of experience, which is crazy because I'm only 27 years old, my name that's That's the funny part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've even cooked for me. And I'm no one special.
1: I think you're pretty special. I feel lucky to be here with you. I'm like the guy who is out of place. Like You're this broadcast journalism professional, and I'm a guy who makes jokes and cooks food.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that, because I am Journalist Capital J, but I wear many hats. I'm a broadcast journalist. I'm also the PA announcer for the New York Mets, and I've never met a plate of food that I don't Love, which is why you and I are friends, right?
1: Where does your love of food come from?
0: I do love food. I'm a self-proclaimed wannabe chef. I just learned from watching people like you. I literally learned to cook by watching Top Chef, reading Bon Appetit, and occasionally, you know, asking the chef at whatever restaurant I go to if he wouldn't mind telling me what this delicious broth is that I'm eating. So yes, I've pissed off a lot of chefs because I want them to come out of the kitchen.
1: (laughs) That's the best thing about this show. Now you're professional when you ask for your info.
0: Speaking of the show, the founders of Food for the Frontlines are going to speak with us. Do you know they've raised more than $130,000 to support frontline workers?
1: But first, it's been a struggle for many restaurants during the pandemic. I mean, I I didn't know what to expect or who was going to make it. I mean, if you think back to March when everything shut down, people lost their jobs. I mean, no one was eating out.
0: And then slowly, takeout. It became a huge thing. But some restaurants, some restaurants had to pivot to not only sell food, but they were selling groceries, toilet paper,
1: As the state has slowly opened up, restaurants expanded to outdoor dining and most recently opened limited indoor dining.
0: But how are these restaurants actually doing? You know, at this stage of reopening, there are still so many question marks. So Chef Plum and I, we took a tour around the state to check in in some of our favorite, favorite spots. First up, we hear from the one and only Chef Tyler Anderson. So he owns six restaurants, you know him, right? He owns six restaurants around the state. I spoke to him early on in the summer over at Millwrights in Simsbury. If you have not been, run, don't walk. They have a beautiful outdoor setting. There's a waterfall, it's a former mill. Here's Tyler taking me on a tour of the setup.
2: We want people to feel very, very, very safe, obviously. This has always been a special occasion restaurant, like for its entire existence as a building so we feel like coming back from quarantine and your first dining out experience is also a very special thing that you know i won't forget the first plate meal i had when i came back out of this so we wanted people to feel safe and you know it's all part of it
0: after you let's head out to the bridge shall we and you will hear a huge difference because the waterfall we can't shut that thing off not that we should
2: no i don't want it to shut up you know we were we were honestly a little concerned about the noise of the waterfall Affecting a dining experience, but it works out perfectly when you're sitting at a table because you can hear the people across from you But you can't hear the people at the table next to you.
0: We, we just walked another 10 feet and there is a hand-washing station
2: Yeah, hand-washing station just in case you prefer the traditional method two sanitizers two hand-washing stations on your way in and out and then Here we are on the old bridge.
0: All right, let's cross the bridge and see the kitchen. All right, here we go. We're on the other side of the bridge and another hand-washing station.
2: Another hand-washing station, yeah, so here you go. We wanted to be very, very transparent with what we're doing here. Uh, We wanted people to be able to see how their drinks are prepared, how their food is prepared. So you can just walk up, you can see the bartender making your drinks. We're doing full bar, we're doing full wine list, we're doing everything that way. And people are drinking quite a bit these days, which is awesome. Keep that up, folks. Uh, That's Chef Ashley.
0: Hi, Chef Ashley, she so just waved it at us.
2: We're doing about 100 covers a night here, close to 100 covers a night. We do four courses, so we have about 400 plates of food that leave that little area every night. We do all the prep inside, we bring it out every day, and then we redo it all again the next day. We take everything back in, we clean the whole truck, uh, we go through it all, and then we come back in.
0: By the way, it smells delicious. You've got all this beautiful wood underneath your bar, and it sounds like whatever I eat tonight will be prepared by wood fire.
2: We are very fortunate to be able to use maple wood here in New England, which is like, cheat. it's like God helping you cheat at cooking. Uh, So maple wood just gives off like this subtle sweetness to everything it's cooked over.
0: I want to walk over to the table because you've done something that is so charming, but necessary to keep things even more sanitary.
2: Right. We didn't want service staff touching a bunch of stuff at your table and having to have like a bunch of interactions with things on your table outside of what normal service would be. So everything you need to start your meal is packaged before in a picnic basket and put on your table.
0: Beautiful, it is this uh, red gingham. That's where I got my silverware. Yep. I got my butter, everything was wrapped up, completely
2: sanitized. I think there was even a menu in there. Yeah, your menus are in there. There's a note, your bread service is in there, Uh, water, water glasses, silverware, all ready to go. And it's one less touch, or it's a lot less touches, actually. Everything is wrapped up. Everything is in there, clean and ready to go.
0: After the tour, Chef Tyler Anderson sat down and talked to me a little bit more about how the restaurant adapted during the pandemic and what's next.
2: Restaurant people by nature are, we can move, we can duck, we can weave, we can deal with situations, uh, a lot of us. And, you know, it's something we're hustlers, and it's something I've been doing my whole life. So, you know, instead of sitting on our hands and crying about the situation, we decided to figure it out here and we did take out um, we set up a curbside uh no contact system we put a little one of those ring doorbells where you can see the people and we ran the control center out of here we turned our dining room into a warehouse and we had amazing amazing support and people in the farmington valley and people from all over the place came and got food from us and we were able to keep half of our staff employed throughout uh, which was great and here we are today, you know, unfolding slowly but surely each phase. We're trying to nail each phase.
0: What was it like transitioning to takeout? Had you done takeout before?
2: No, I've never done takeout in my <laughs> life. The most takeout I ever did was at Cook in the Bear. And we did a good amount of takeout there, but I wasn't involved really in the logistics of takeout. And then when you go to doing close to the same volume you were doing before in food, like obviously we were missing the beverage piece the entire time, but when you're doing close to the same volume in boxes, uh, it's not easy, you know, and you <laughs> you have to pivot and you have to have a good team around you, and thankfully we had the ability to do both. But when you're like loading up all these little cups of things, Um, you know, it was interesting and I like to do different stuff. It's why, you know, I wake up every day and I don't really know what I'm going to do that day. And that's kind of how I prefer things to be. And I think that came through really well during that time because we're in the Farmington Valley of Connecticut and there aren't a million people living here. And so what we knew we needed to do is we needed to do something different all the time. I mean, I was doing chef collaboration dinners. We were doing virtual dinners. We turned into a barbecue restaurant for a week and a half till the health department shut me down. I think it worked, but at the same time my staff came into work every day very confused. It was just like, please follow me and do the best we can, (laughs) um, and let's see how long it takes us to fill up all these little containers of stuff. I mean, at one point we did a seven-course tasting menu to go. We have pivoted and we're opening a full-service catering company where We're getting wood-fired trailers, and we can take them wherever you want. We don't need any gas. We don't need any water. We don't need any electricity. We could do this in the middle of a forest. We could cater a party for 200 people. And we just feel like that is where things will be going now.
0: Since taping this interview, Millwrights has opened for limited indoor seating, but Chef Tyler Anderson says folks really do like that outdoor situation. He's also added a food truck in the parking lot, and it's called Taku, and he likes to call it a Tijuana-style taco stand in Simsbury, Connecticut.
1: I spent some time with Michelle Sharma, the chef and owner of South On Boswick Cantina and Grill in Bridgeport. It's the kind of place where you grab an egg sandwich on your way to work or a piled-high Dagwood sandwich on your lunch break. It's a small spot in the industrial boat dock area of Bridgeport, not far from the Captain's Cove hotspot. Chef owner Michelle is beloved in the area, and people flock to her spot when she is open. South on Boswick is a seasonal restaurant. They normally open in March, and that's when everything kind of shut down.
3: So I did not know whether or not I was able to push back for three weeks, three months, you know, a year. Was I able to do it? I wasn't too sure, you know, with not knowing what COVID entailed or what coronavirus was all about. So it was was hard to make the decision as to whether or not I was going to open on time. And I figured, you know, by April, it should be over. April came and went and it still wasn't over. So now I'm four months behind the ball. You know, I've got a lot of people calling me, looking to see whether or not we are opening. I guess they thought that we weren't going to be able to survive the whole COVID epidemic, but we're, we're here.
1: South on Boswick is located in an industrial area. There's an asphalt plant up the road, and Michelle has built a stable of regulars who support the business.
3: I've been in contact with a lot of the customers in the area. They're all slowly coming back to their offices, so I, I'm going to do my, my share of what I have to do and open for them. You know, I'm, I'm tired of being in the house. You know, <laughs> I really am. I, I need to get out, and I need to start whipping up some things for people who are really, really worthy. I miss my customers, and they miss me.
1: That was Michelle Sharma from South on Bostwick Cantina and Grill in Bridgeport. She's currently open for breakfast and lunch. You got to go down and check her out. I also met with Aki Urai, the chef and owner of House of Yoshida in Bethel. While most restaurants were struggling to make ends meet, Aki has been doing better than ever during the pandemic. Oh,
4: yeah. We actually did more sales than ever without without Corona. So we're doing well. Up about 30% for
1: June. 30% up. Wow, man. House of Yoshida was so busy, in fact, Aki had to get another phone line, and he actually hired additional staff.
4: Yeah, I got another phone line because the people are complaining about my phones are always busy. (laughs) So I'm like, sorry.
1: That got more people in the restaurant to come pick up food, but did it ever cause a problem for staffing or anything? I hired two more
4: people during (laughs) the corona, yeah.
1: Perhaps it's easier for Aki to remain upbeat since his business is good right now. But he's all about paying it forward and doing exactly what he does
4: best. Now, as long as, you know, you help your neighbor, right? Everybody help each other, then everybody's happy. If I know how to cook, I'll cook. If I know how to make a rocket, I'll make a rocket. But unfortunately, I know I only know how to cook.
1: That was Aki Urai, the chef and owner of House of Yoshida in Bethel. Aki also makes a killer linguine with a clam sauce and the most amazing meatballs. He never lets me forget that
0: what about food trucks louise joseph is the chef and owner of dough girls pizza truck in greenwich it's a light orange truck it's parked right in front of the greenwich ymca if you're driving down the post road you really can't miss it so louise is inside and she's wearing a mask but i can already tell she's smiling she has that kind of positive energy louise had to be really creative when it came to keeping her business running including selling take and bake pizza kits
5: initially i was afraid to take the truck out so i just said pizza kits and so it's cheese margarita or pepperoni kept it simple two doughs come with a kit comes with instructions and you can just make your own pizza so I started doing that and I got overwhelmed with those and then I decided to deliver them myself big mistake because I was all <laughs> over the place I was all over the place. it literally took me all day to deliver because I, I underestimated the success of the pizza kits so the orders kept coming in and so I had to fulfill them. And so then I thought, okay, let's try and take the truck out because the kits are being well-received, but our people are people tired of making their own food? They just want something simple. They want to eat good food. They want it fast. Everyone's stressed. Everyone loves pizza, or at least they should. <laughs> um, and so then I brought the truck out, and then it became like a 50-50 with the kits and the pizza.
0: Can I actually sample some of your pizza? Do you have one at the ready, you or are you know, going to make one?
5: So they cook it a minute and a half. So you can have here's the menu. Here you can choose whatever you want.
0: Okay, everything is locally sourced.
5: Yes, we do from the Hickories, Fort Hill. There's Old Greenwich Farmers Market on Wednesday nights. So after here, I go there. There's Versailles Farmers Market, our farm. Sorry, in Greenwich, they're amazing. They're also amazing. I make my own cheese. I make the fresh mozzarella. I make the dough. I make the sauce. Uh, the sausage. Whatever I can make from scratch, I do. How have you been affected financially during this time? I have to be grateful for for being able to work because some people aren't able to work I didn't quote lose my job so I'm grateful for that Um, financially (laughs) um, you know I'm doing I'm doing all right I can't really complain it's just such a big difference from I never street bend this is street vending I never did that I always did farmers markets events festivals Uh, we do do private parties also So that's what I um, generally do. So some of these events like New Haven had a pizza festival. So when you have like your line is 70 deep to this, it's a big it's a big change. But the difference is I'm not as busy on the day to day. But since I'm only here twice a week and people don't know where to not that they don't know where to find me, but they know I'm limited. I don't have a brick and mortar yet. So um, <laughs> so they come and they'll get like 10, 12 pies at a time.
0: By the way, ladies and gentlemen, that plate is finished. Hold on. I'm taking my mask down. This dough is so light. Holy smokes. This pizza is delicious. That was Louise Joseph, chef and owner of Dough Girls Pizza Truck. By the way, I volunteered to work with Louise on the truck if she'd pay me in pizza. <laughs> coming up not everyone was able to pivot their businesses to survive the shutdown we'll hear from restaurant folks from Hartford and New Haven who made the tough decision to close their doors for good and then later the co-founders of food for the front lines i Castro
1: and I'm chef plum this is seasoned we'll be right back after the break
0: Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. We just heard stories of adaptation and resilience from some Connecticut chefs, but for some restaurants in the state, no amount of adaptation was going to help them stay in business, and they closed their doors for good because of the pandemic. In a moment, you'll hear from Craig Sklar. Craig, along with Torin Davis, owned the Beer Collective in New Haven, which closed permanently back in June. But first, Carrie Wheaton gives us an idea of what we lose when a mission-driven restaurant like Firebox in Hartford closes. Carrie is the executive director of Forge City Works, a nonprofit providing culinary training and food access to communities in Hartford. Carrie created Firebox in 2007 for the Melville Charitable Trust as part of their strategy to build strong communities. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the show and Giving us a peek into your world, I have to imagine it's not very easy to talk about Firebox closing. It's not just a loss for you, but for the family and community that you've built there. What makes or made Firebox different from other restaurants? What was the mission?
6: Uh, Hi, it's nice to talk to you. And it is sad to talk about Firebox, but I also want to always take the opportunity to celebrate the 13 years that we had in the Hartford community. So uh, what made Firebox different? Uh, really was in in its very DNA from the beginning. It is an investment of the Melville Charitable Trust and its aim was both to be financially sustainable, but also to provide job opportunities for Hartford residents, to be a site for our culinary job trainees, to practice the skills that they learned in in a real restaurant space and also to reintroduce or to introduce visitors to Hartford into one of the really vibrant neighborhoods of the city which is Rockalo.
0: Yeah. And you were also doing farm to table before it was cool before it was part of everyone's lexicon. You were like the the OG of the farm to table movement.
6: I love that name. That that is true. And we do still have two cafes that we run the kitchen on Broad Street and the kitchen at the Hartford Public Library, which focus on farm to table food in a cafe setting. And then we also have a weekly farmer's market, which gives access to healthy and local food.
0: During this pandemic, everyone really had to shift and rethink, and I know takeout and delivery was part of some folks, you know, schematic, but you somehow didn't see that as, as an answer. So what, what were some of the challenges for
6: you? Well, we did do a couple of special dinners and some pickup food, and it was popular. But I think it's very difficult for a large restaurant like Firebox. We seat 140 people to be able to really maintain ourselves uh, from a financial perspective, doing 25 takeout meals a night. You know, we have occupancy costs, we have labor costs, we have those other pieces, Uh, Firebox is really a destination restaurant for many of the institutions uh, surrounding the restaurant, as well as uh, the governor and uh, politicians, because we are the closest fine dining restaurant to the Capitol, as well as the closest to Bushnell Theater. None of those things were happening at all. Trinity, as well, is less than a mile away. These were our regular visitors, certainly a big portion of them and with absolutely none of them in the city, nor coming back in the near future, it's my responsibility to really safeguard the trust in this venture. They uh, fund folks involved in homelessness and providing opportunities for the most vulnerable of communities. And we really wanted to be very, very conscious of the use of those resources and the right use of those resources. So part of it was being a very big ship which is hard to turn. And the other part is trying to forecast the future in fine dining. What that's going to look like as people come back to work, which we will go back to a new normal, but what that new normal looks like and when it occurs um, is something that I wanted to be cognizant of.
0: Carrie, what has the community response been to firebox closing? No.
6: Um, We were really absolutely touched. I mean, I got upwards of 300 emails from customers who were just devastated and sad and wanted to reach out and just say, we're going to be missed. And I hope you come back in some way, you know, for our trainees, for our employees. I mean, it's a terrible loss. And I want to say that the employees are who made Firebox what Firebox was and, um, I'm eternally in, grateful for the work and the care and the passion that they had, not just for the restaurant, but, but for the farm to table mission and the mission of providing opportunities for those who are often are not provided opportunities. So, you know, we are spending this time to look at what we could be coming back, what that could mean that would be better and bigger and brighter and sustainable and what is our new normal.
0: Well, that's actually what I was going to ask you as you reimagine what the community restaurant looks like, what are some things that come to mind? Because I cannot imagine that Firebox is going to go down, not swinging.
6: Thank you. I honestly don't think it would look like what Firebox looked like. Firebox was opened, vision 14 years ago. That's a long time ago. And it was really envisioned as a fine dining restaurant that would really entice people into the neighborhood. So it is not a restaurant that most of the folks who lived in the community could afford which has had its own issues and challenges. One of the reasons why we started our cafes as well, that had a better price point for people. I'm not sure fine dining is coming back in the same way that we imagine it. And I think our training, though um, a great opportunity for people at Firebox, we're looking at how can we embed our training even more closely into Firebox 201 is what we're calling it. That's not what it's actually going to be called. We don't know what the name is. We're going to be talking to lots of stakeholders and lots of community members about what it could look like. But we're really looking at something that's probably more casual, a little bit more accessible, something that um, when you come into the door, you will see trainees and employees and community members, something that really reflects the neighborhood that people are coming to.
0: Carrie Wheaton, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much
6: for your interest.
1: New Haven lost a great community spot, too, especially for craft beer lovers like me. For the last three and a half years, Craig Sklar and Torin Davis owned the Beer Collective in New Haven. Craig considered the Beer Collective as an extension of a craft brewery tasting room. Here's how Craig describes the Beer Collective.
7: It was almost a tap room in and of itself, right? We featured so many local Connecticut beers. We did small pours on a lot of beers, and we really just wanted to like, introduce people to the broad spectrum of styles. Um, so we were a fairly esoteric kind of craft beer niche bar when we first opened, but we found a, a very warm home in New Haven, uh, and we were able to kind of, I think, bring some of the other Connecticut beers to New Haven to introduce people. So what was going on in the Connecticut scene?
1: Like for any business owner, making the decision to close the restaurant was a hard one. At first, Craig and Turin played a wait-and-see game. Loan options were confusing and hard to come by, and small independent restaurants, they're at a disadvantage when it comes to access to money
7: at least for like the smaller independent guys, you know, we don't have, you know, big budgets. We don't have tons of money put away. When we stop getting revenue, like everything gets a little nerve wracking uh, real fast. You know, some of these bigger guys, the chain guys, they have, you know, corporate budgets, you know, a lot, a lot more money. And additionally, they have access to a lot more money, right? They have the ability to hire more lawyers, hire accountants, whatever they need to go out and go after loans. And, you know, that access to money is extremely important when, your revenue basically goes from whatever you're comfortable with to 10, 25% of that.
1: The beer collective may have closed, but the restaurant community in New Haven is all about reinvention. Craig is currently working with partners to bring Nashville hot chicken to the city. One of my favorites.
7: You know, a lot of us, you know, we're really tough. We're resilient people. We're very passionate about what we do. You know, food is a lot of our livelihoods and a lot of our lives. We just, we love that. And, you know, like I said, it's just, it's really great to see Everyone's kind of looking around at what's happening and we're trying to figure out different ways to pivot and and make businesses successful because we want to, you know, food is is a great thing and it it, it brings communities together and we want to continue to be able to provide that.
1: That was Craig Sklar of The Beer Collective. Craig's next project is Haven Hot Chicken. Look out for it in the fall. We're rooting for you, Craig.
0: We wanted to find out how much support is available for restaurants and restaurant workers from the state of Connecticut and the federal government. So we called up David Lehman, Connecticut Commissioner of the Department of Economic and Community Development. He told us that restaurants, along with retail, were the sectors with the highest unemployment claims in Connecticut throughout the pandemic. And with the news that the $600 federal pandemic unemployment assistance supplements expired last week, I asked Commissioner Lehman what conversations he's been having with his team, to continue support restaurant workers and others.
4: So we've been paying a lot of attention to uh, the blog in DC and and talking to our federal attention on this point. Additional assistance is is certainly needed given many businesses aren't gonna be able to rehire all of their employees, whether it's $600 or another number or a percentage of one's wages. It sounds like all of that is on the table, but in terms of the importance of the economy getting additional dollars into you know, the pockets of those that are not able to go back to work. You know, we think that's really important. I do think this next federal package uh, in terms of stimulus, that that will be one of the most important parts of it.
0: So what is it that you are doing to do that balancing act?
4: I think for us, the most important thing for the economy, and I think more folks are are coming around to this realization, but embracing uh, the public health uh, and interventions that we're talking about, like mass distancing, hand washing. Really, the basic three, those are so critical. Um, so I, I think our view, and certainly my view, is we want people to participate in the economy, to go to that restaurant, to go to that retail shop, to go about you know, as normal a, a life um, as they previously had, but do that safely. Do that with the distancing, the hand-washing, and the mask wearing. And that's the best thing, again, for health as well as for the economy. One of the things that DECD has done in collaboration with public health and others over the past three months has been our reopening protocol. So making sure we set very clear guidelines and then it broadly how to reopen businesses, not just for employees, but for customers. We think that's really, really important in maintaining some of the success we've had here in the state.
0: When you think about the state in general and you think about all the different levels, whether it's entrepreneurs or schools or businesses or for our purposes, the food industry, how much of your time and the circles that you run in revolve around the food industry
4: we spend a lot of time with the food industry whether that's restaurants bars whether that's the event industry caterers because it's such a significant employer in the state of connecticut and broadly and such a significant part of our economy but even beyond that in you know the food industry restaurants that's main street it's the community uh, and i think our sense of community is so linked with restaurants and cafes and that type of experience for many many people even beyond its significant employment and economic might it has a, a community aspect which is critical. So we'll we'll continue to have uh, significant dialogue with that group. And candidly, with the the food industry, we've seen them really adapt in many ways, right? Outdoor dining in Connecticut has been a great example. Many have taken full advantage of it. so we're we're enabling restaurants to have one hundred percent of their capacity outdoors at this point in time because we feel it is that much safer we know consumers prefer it and many many uh, restaurants have taken full advantage of that and they're planning on going to september we, we can talk about if we can go beyond that getting space heaters for example like you see in other places how do we how do we continue to allow the the economic and social activity while keeping people safe so that that's going to be critical for us and the food industry is a huge part of it
0: i would imagine so and i would imagine even if outdoor seating or outdoor dining is permissible in the colder months, there will once again be a divide of the chef's owners who can afford things like a tent and a space heater and those that can't. Have you put any thinking behind what that might look like? Would there perhaps be money allocated to those local, those mom and pop restaurants uh, that can't afford that sort of thing?
4: We're certainly happy to have those conversations. Typically, what we found Marisol is the, the constraint has been space um, in terms of if, if it's a restaurant, for example, on the city street where there isn't the sidewalk or the parking lot or the lawn, the green space, even if they had the money for the tent, that's been the, the bigger issue. But I think to the, to the first part of your question, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think you can have an environment where you have safe employees, safe customers, consumers that feel good about going back for that experience. I think the weather is going to be a big challenge, especially if we're talking about November, December, January, depending on when uh, there is a therapeutic or vaccine. That's probably the most formidable challenge, but I think we can uh, and have created an environment where we keep employees and customers safe in an appropriate way.
0: Commissioner David Lehman, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Marisol. After
1: the break, the co founders of Food for the Frontlines described the coordinated effort behind feeding Connecticut's frontline and restaurant workers.
0: Plus, we promised you recipes from Connecticut chefs, and we deliver a Muddy Solo Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. More after the break. Stay with us on Seasoned.
0: This is Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro,
1: and I'm Chef Plum.
0: We want to introduce you to two special people in the food world. Jess Bankston is the executive chef at the Terrain Garden Cafe and Amis Trattoria in Westport. Stephanie Webster is the founder of CT Bites.
1: Back in March, when the pandemic began turning the lives of chefs and restaurant workers, all of us really, upside down, the friends sprung into action, creating food for the front lines to support healthcare workers and restaurants.
0: We talked to Jess and Stephanie about the effort, as well as how a CT Bites cookbook is helping with restaurant relief. We are at the very beautiful Terrain Cafe in Westport, Connecticut. Plum, have you been?
1: I have been here once. Uh, I've told brunch has to happen in my life here.
0: Brunch has to happen. This place is a pillar of the community here. And we're going to talk to two folks who not only have a special place in this wonderful establishment, but have used this as sort of like a pseudo platform for things that they've worked on during this crazy pandemic.
1: Inspired a lot of people.
0: Inspired a lot of people. So I would like to introduce the chef of Terrain Enemies, chef Jess Bangston. Hello, Jess. Hello. Next to you is your friend and colleague, Stephanie Webster, the creator of CT Bites and also one of the founders of Food for the Frontlines.
8: Happy to be here.
0: You immediately started, Steph, by saying, it's all her fault. And you pointed <laughs> at Jess.
8: I what, did indeed. What is this about? Somewhere in the early stages of the pandemic, Jess decided it would be really nice to feed some of the unemployed restaurant workers who were sitting at home. They were hungry. They had families to feed. Not everybody is el- eligible for unemployment and PPP money. So she organized basically a pantry drop where she leveraged her, re- her resources and made pantry boxes that fed a family of four and distributed throughout the you know, Fairfield County area. So she really was the brainchild for this endeavor for Food for Behind the, behind the
1: Lines.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Does Fair that enough. work for you? Yeah. By the way, Plum, can you set the scene for us? Because I think I hear Osprey in the
1: background. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, it's funny. If you guys have ever seen the first Jurassic Park, we're actually sitting <laughs> in the Velociraptor pen right now. You should see there's <laughs> greens everywhere. We're in, it's like a greenhouse. And we're sitting here, it's so pretty out. The sunshine. there's an Osprey in the background. And just getting these stories as we sit in this beautiful area, I can't wait to hear more about it.
0: Jess, you obviously work directly in the restaurant industry, What is it like for the people that work in restaurants even before COVID hit and folks were losing their jobs left and right?
9: I think just everybody's kind of trying to feel out like what was happening to them then in the moment and what's the future is going to look like. So are restaurant's going to be open. The servers are like, are people going to come out and eat? The kitchen guys, are they going to get enough hours? So I think everybody's just waiting to see how things will unfold. I certainly think it's a little bit more settled now and people feeling better But I think as the weeks and months go on, it's probably going to get a little scarier as we get into the fall and the winter.
1: Chef, as things kind of started to pick back up a little bit, did you feel like the community really embraced everything you guys were doing?
9: Westport's been great. They're very loyal and they're being very safe and very reliable. And they're coming out and spending their money and getting takeout, going out to eat. So the community has really shown up for the restaurants. And then just people jumping in like C.T. Bites, out of all the food bloggers and Instagrammers and influencers that really like the first day of COVID kind of jumped in to support the restaurants. And there's been individual folks, programs, companies. Everybody's kind of just done, yep. you know, support each
8: other and the whole time. When, and when you think about it, if you look towards the future when we come out of this, like, what do you want your future to look like? Do you want it to be a bunch of fast food chains or do you want to have your restaurants and your chefs that you love? I mean, right. That's the important thing. So I think people have rallied around this and they really are trying to support the local chefs.
0: Now, Stephanie, I know you very well. I know you come up with these harebrained ideas. How was Food for the Frontlines born?
8: Probably the first week we went into quarantine, the restaurants were struggling. Obviously they were closed. We wanted to be able to support the restaurant industry and also support our frontline healthcare workers. So a very exceptional woman named Nicole Strait did the first food run. She basically ordered some food and delivered it to a hospital and it just steamrolled from there. We raised about $130,000 We spent a lot of money with the local industry to support the healthcare workers, so everybody won. We gave them a lot of business in the industry, and we had a lot of very grateful nurses, doctors, EMT workers, etc. So that is really how it happened.
1: Did you guys have a goal when you started this whole thing? Was it like, listen, can we raise $10,000? Absolutely $20?
8: not. As she
9: said, <laughs> hair, hair <brain, laughs> I think Nicole said she did it the first day she did it because yeah. her daughter was a EMS yeah. and was like, oh, I want to bring my daughter and some of the people. She's at the uh, volunteer ambulance house mm. some dinner. And then all of a sudden she said people basically just started like giving them money without really even asking yeah. to continue to do it. And what's incredible
8: she literally posted something on Facebook, and then CT Bytes got involved very early mm-hmm. on to sort of spread the word and make it even bigger, the footprint. But the money, like Jess said, just kept rolling in. People were so excited to help this cause mm-hmm. that um, it was a, it was a no-brainer.
1: How many different restaurants were involved?
8: So I think we, at the end, I think we counted about 70 restaurants. Wow. We started in Fairfield County. We moved into Hartford County. We were in New Haven and then Westchester actually jumped on board. So it just got larger and larger until things sort of calmed down in the Connecticut area. Mm-hmm. And that's when we pivoted to food for behind the lines when we started feeding the restaurant workers. Before I get to that, yeah. what do you attribute the success to? People felt were scared. They felt helpless. They wanted to help these people. They wanted to help the healthcare workers yeah. and the restaurant industry, and they didn't know how to. And this was a very easy way to help both at the same time. It just, it felt like the right thing to do at the right time. And it was really exciting.
1: Can you tell us about the process though, how that would work? So I donate money. Yep. I say, here's a hundred dollars. You know how does that work? The restaurant picks the food. You guys pick the food, and then when you go to the uh, hospital or the doctor's office, you tell them you're coming. How does that whole process work? We actually had a
8: pretty um, complicated and structured (laughs) infrastructure. We had spreadsheets, and we had accountants behind this. To be honest, you did. I I did actually. (laughs) Well, these (laughs) two. Okay, first
0: of all, Jess. Jess is crazy about visual order. Okay. And Steph is crazy about any kind of order. So it does not shock me to hear her say they were spreadsheets and accountants and yeah. All right. So
8: essentially, Nicole, as I said, who I mentioned previously, she would call the local hospitals and EMT and blah, 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 and would sort of get uh, numbers. Like, what do you need this week? What would really help you guys out? And
9: what floor or department? It was a lot of like, okay, today you're going to do the ICU, Yep. And the ER, so I think we exactly. switch a lot of floors. we switch floors yeah. around, We'd, this
8: would be the fire department day,
9: we would move around
8: and we would budget based on week and we would sort of assign restaurant based on the numbers and the location. So the point was, if the um, hospital was in Danbury, let's go support some Danbury restaurants. If it was in Norwalk, we'll go hit up Norwalk restaurants. Right. So we tried to spread it out and very quickly restaurants started coming to us and saying, how do we get involved, do you want to be a part of it? So some of it was donations, which was really nice. And the point was not to get donations from restaurants. The purpose was to support the restaurants and fund them. We gave, we tipped very generously and we love spending the money. Like nothing felt better than doing that.
9: Train was one of the first restaurants the first week. And I will say the day that we did it was the only sale we did that entire day. Wow.
8: So it kept a lot of restaurants going. We also had restaurants that would call up and say, We're about to close our doors. We're we're going down here. Can we please do one of these deliveries? And we would, you know, we're handing them $1,000. It's not nothing, it's not a $40 order. Because that was the
1: minimum, right? There had to be $1,000. It was like a big order. order.
8: We tried to, yeah, we tried to place larger orders. You know, we do a whole floor in the ICU or a whole floor in a hospital. So they were big orders.
0: So what were you feeding these people?
9: (laughs) Good food, man. (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember. Where did you feed them? I can't remember. At Misa <laughs> I think we did some pastas and salads and some entrees. It depended
8: on the restaurant. If yeah. it was
9: Mexican was Thai cuisine, had, yeah. we had
8: gorgeous. Th- I mean, yeah. and chefs really went all out. They wrote beautiful notes yeah. on all the packages because everything had to be individually packaged. Yeah. I mean, it was beautiful food. These people were getting. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like just a sandwich in a bag. It of wasn't chefs. a PB and J. Which don't
0: underestimate the power of a PB and J. No, a good PB and J goes a They're long delicious. way. Delicious. Delicious. All right. Thank you, chef. At what point did you uh, decide? All right. Now we want to do food for behind the front lines. What is that? And how did, you, how did you make that transition? I'm going to say
8: just really launched this program.
9: Yeah, I did one food drive by myself just by starting a GoFundMe and asking for money from my friends and coworkers. And I got like $2,500 in a couple of days. Awesome. Um, and that was the week prior to the stimulus check, before there was the unemployment check. Mm-hmm. So there was a couple of weeks where, you know, restaurant workers, you're working for your paycheck week to week. So there's a three- or four-week span that, I could just tell was going to be very stressful for everybody so i was like we got to get food out this week and that was really the intention was just to do it one time to get food to like our community that particular time span and And then then we realized
8: that at some point the need in the hospitals was dying down a little bit Mm -hmm. and there was another whole group of food insecure individuals which was the restaurant workers that were out of work or furloughed right right um so we pivoted we did that probably mid-april we started yeah. yeah, something around mid-April, we decided to feed the, the out-of-work industry. And so, so what street. were you what were you giving them? Prepared food? Or were you giving them
9: groceries?
0: What was, what was in the box?
9: So the box is probably a week's worth of food for a family of two to four. So it's a good... They're getting proteins, vegetables, fruit, milk, cheese, bread, grains, pastas, beans. And it's different every time depending on what I can get for a good price. And then Baldor, who's been kind of sponsoring us and helping us out, gives us some donations sometimes. And then we have... You know, Gilberty's gave us some microgreens one time, so we kind of try to take stuff that anybody has and puts it together. But it's a in comparison of things that you would get at a food pantry or other things, boxes of cereal, macaroni and cheese. It's like tomatoes and bananas and mm-hmm. the produce. It's fresh, beautiful food. Yeah, food. yeah, yeah, that box was lucky. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Those are good stuff. Occasionally, hey, yeah. sure you get an avocado.
0: <laughs> and what was what was the reaction from the recipients in the restaurant worker industry?
9: It was really great, so we try to organize it so a group comes one at a time just to keep social distance safe, and then we'd reach out to a chef and say, hey, chef, do you have any staff that needs um, food? And then a lot of the times the chef or the restaurant owner that would say, well, my staff can't get there, can I come pick it up for them? So we would have a chef that would come pick up 10 or 12, 20, 30 boxes for their staff, and I would say that the chefs and the owners were very moved to be able to be that in-between person for their staff, Mm -hmm. who I'm sure they're not feeling guilt. I don't know what the right word is. Feeling that they're taking ownership for them being out of work or needing stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that was definitely... Yeah. There's a A tricky
8: situation because the chefs and the restaurant owners were trying to support their their workers, their staff that was out of work. So they were trying to feed them. They were giving them... They were doing Mm -hmm. this on their own to a certain extent. Some of the good guys were. But the reality was the chefs and the owners... They can't do it forever. They're struggling themselves. Like, yeah. they're just getting by every week at this point. I mean, things are a little better now, but let's be real, they're not great. So it was a huge burden off their shoulders, I think, to get the food.
0: Right. But wait, there's more. But but, but wait. <laughs> because Stephanie not only did all of this, she decided, you know what? Well, while we're doing cooking lines, let's do a cookbook.
1: I've got more time. Honestly, I don't know how you did it. Have you I hate to out, be bored.
0: Have you checked out her, this
1: cookbook? Oh, I have.
0: All right. Spill the beans, sister. Yeah, and you know, so
8: in the middle of all this, I was trying to come up with other ways. To be honest, the fundraising for food for the front lines was easier than the fundraising for food for behind the lines. Really? Why, Much why do you think easier. that is? Uh, possibly where it came out in the timeline, people mm. were tired of being hit up for money. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe yeah. people were not as concerned about the restaurant industry workers as they were about the front, you know, the healthcare workers. Right. So I realized we had to come up with another way to raise money and given who CT Bites is in the community, it seemed like a logical choice to leverage all the relationships we have with chefs, and we did a cookbook. And we really fast-tracked it, because I knew these people needed food. We're like, can we do this 100 recipes in like three weeks? And we did it! <laughs> I was gonna say, we did it
9: in like under a month, start to finish, We did
8: it right? in under a month, got a wow. designer, the photography together got a copy editor the whole thing it's actually beautiful our designer was incredible rita rivera um, everything was donated and the chefs were thrilled to be a part of it it was a nice way for the chefs to also communicate with their guests that they miss you know that this is restaurants weren't open at this point and they missed their diners and their little notes throughout the book to the readers that are really sweet hope and inspiration yeah. and the recipes are incredible some of the recipes are sort of the, the signature dish from an individual restaurant that you've always wondered how to make it. You know, how do
9: they make those dumplings right. Right. or
8: whatever? So now you get, to, you get to experience it in your own house.
9: I, would I printed my copy out. She did print the entire, the entire 200 cookbook? page. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's a digital it's sitting, cookbook, I have it, yes. it looks so nice. I have it sitting on my coffee table in my living room. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. I'm going to cook the book.
1: It's really easy to get. How can people get this oh, book? Oh,
9: so easy to get. Um, it's a digital download. So you can
8: go to ctbytes.com. It's right on the top nav bar. And uh, click on Cookbook. And it's yours in three seconds or less.
0: In a matter of seconds. And if you are truly intrepid like if Jess you want Banks to print it out,
9: it's a much longer <laughs> or you can print it out. It <laughs> was probably 20, 20 minutes of printing. I should.
8: I should note that the price of the cookbook is very intentional. It's $25, which is exactly the cost, approximately, to put together one of these pantry boxes. So you're basically, when you download this cookbook, you are feeding a family of four for a week, which is cool.
0: So what's next? Do you continue getting money for frontline workers, restaurant workers? How do you see this evolving?
9: Well, we've got money. The cookbook sales have been great. And honestly, not rushing spending it because we're the fall and the winter are going to be tough. Yeah. yeah, It tougher than now, which is already pretty tough. So I think longevity is the key, trying to save our resources and make sure that it lasts and gets to the right people at the right time. Exactly.
1: So Steph you have a couple of favorite recipes though from the book, right?
9: Mm, there's so many, it's really hard to
8: pick.
1: I mean, let me ask but, you, this. But is it like picking one of your like your favorite kid? Like it's a little it, bit I like you know,
8: that. I know who her
0: favorite People kid are so is. Protective I won't over say. Well, I'm scared. Broadcast.
8: Her. But,
1: well, I'm worried about you answering this question cuz I'm afraid that some chefs are going to be offended you yeah. didn't pick them. Chefs
8: will get all riled up when And it's they do. Just two chefs out of that 100.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think with all the philanthropy you do, they'll get over it. And okay. if they don't, it's going to be okay. I'll take care of them for you. I mean,
8: it's obviously given that Jess's recipe is outstanding and incredibly beautiful. Is so it the
0: artichokes?
9: Oh, no, I did uh, a, a garden focaccia. Remember that? <gasps> oh, so, yeah. The you
8: decorate oh, nice. with flowers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it looks like a garden. It's very beautiful. Yeah. Some of the other ones that I think were really fantastic were craft uh, Bird food trucks. They did a truffle mac and cheese bite. So basically you form the little mac and cheese wonders into a square and you deep fry them. And they are just, they're just—they're out of this world delicious, like crazy good. And
9: for <laughs> <her> description of, <laughs> yeah. be fried yeah, right, and right, it's yeah. done. It's well, sp- Spoken like a true like, chef. Yeah. Yeah. It just happens <laughs> like that.
1: I'm starving, myself. We got any—we got any mac and cheese bites? I'm starving. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. Are we all out of those? I think no? yeah. we don't have any more.
8: <laughs> and then we got you know like Arethusa, which is really one of the best cheese makers in the country. The guys from Manolo Blanik—they mm-hmm. did a really beautiful blue cheese mousse that is stunning. Oh my God. If you look at the picture; it's visually beautiful.
1: Do we have but any blue cheese mousse? It's
8: crazy I mean... delicious. Oh, it's to die for. You can get it at their restaurant or you can make it make at it home. yourself or you can make it at home sheesh um, there are tons of great recipes we love this gluten free gnocchi from um, taproot chef mm-hmm. Jeff Taby. Uh-huh. I just appreciate that as I have a daughter who has to eat gluten-free. So I'm very so grateful not? for a gluten-free recipe. And they're beautiful
1: and light and fluffy and delicious. I mean, what a fun way hungry. to try something different at home. You know, everyone's cooking at home now. Stop making banana bread. Go make blue cheese yeah. I was
9: yeah. over banana bread before it became a <laughs> <frame>. <laughs> Sorry. My favorite part about the cookbook is that typically when you get an author's cookbook, they have one style of cooking, right? So it's like, oh, this is an Italian cookbook. This is a farm to table. This is a dessert book. It is all over the yeah, place. So it's kind of cool because you're getting a, a million different perspectives um, and kind of foods and plates and stuff. So yeah. if you're getting metcha dumplings and then the next page you're getting an Italian gnocchi, you it's know, fun. it's kind of cool. Yeah,
8: oh, Great
1: point. That's yeah. actually really And yeah. yeah, it's yeah, 100 absolutely.
8: chefs from all over the state of Connecticut yeah. and caterers. It's a lot of variety.
1: Well, the cookbook is fantastic. I'm not speaking for every chef, but I'm sure I speak for tons of chefs. I say thank you for all the hard work you've done. We appreciate you, inspire everybody. And I feel like I'm a better person than myself just for sitting here talking to them. Aww. Is that better? Does it's, that make me feel okay?
0: You're 100% correct. Yeah, chef.
1: that's right. We, we're learning something. <laughs> we're learning how to be better people.
0: Jess Bankston, Stephanie Webster, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having thanks, us. Thanks, guys. Jess Bankston is the executive chef at the Terrain Garden Cafe and Amistratoria in Westport. Stephanie Webster is the founder of CT Bites and the editor of the Connecticut Chef's Recipes for Restaurant Relief e-cookbook. For information on how you can download the book and get three of Stephanie's favorite chef recipes, including those mac and cheese bites from Craftbird Bird Food Truck, visit ctpublic.org slash seasoned. But before we go, we have something completely fun. We're all ears, pun intended, for your original recipe <laughs> using local corn.
1: Share your recipe with us. And the creator of the most delicious-sounding dish wins bragging rights and the chance to participate in a cook-along with me on Zoom. Let's cook together. It'll be fun. Visit ctpublic.org slash seasoned for details and rules.
0: Can I submit a recipe too, Plum?
1: I feel like that might be cheating a little bit. Fine.
0: I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin doyon aiken and Katie Tolarski.
0: Join us every Thursday at three and eleven, or visit ctpublic.org/slash-seasoned to listen on demand. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, or on Facebook and Instagram too. Search CT Public. Thanks for listening.